when we when we cultivate our curiosity to ask questions to wonder to learn things that we have never been exposed to before um, first it, it we make we connect things that have never been connected before which leads to creativity and innovation it gives us ideas for the craft that we do right um, but also it makes the process so much more joyful it makes it, it makes work and life more full and and more interesting and more fulfilling because we're constantly discovering and being in awe and amazement. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I am here today with Eduardo Braseño, who's a global keynote speaker and facilitator who guides many of the world's leading companies in developing cultures of learning and high performance. And you're also the author of the new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. And for anybody that wants to do a little bit of a superficial dive before they go right into the book, your TED Talk, How to Get Better at the Things You Care About, which I absolutely loved, by the way, and your prior TEDx talk about the power of belief combined have been viewed over 9 million times. So Eduardo, as we talked a little bit about uh, off the record before we started, boy, did I get lucky with you falling in our lap because I am going to thoroughly enjoy today's conversation. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Thanks, Zach, for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Yes. So uh, as I had mentioned a little bit before, uh, and uh, my guests may already know this because I probably mentioned it a time or two in passing, my bucket list of podcast guests include none other than your mentor, Carol Dweck. And if I had the option to get mutually introduced to Carol Dweck or Michael Jordan, I'd say, well, Michael can wait. I'd really like to see if we can get Carol Dweck on the calendar. And the reason I bring that up is because she's a very influential mentor of yours. 
And she talks about something that's called fixed versus growth mindsets. And she wrote the seminal book mindset, which I believe is the foundation of pretty much anything, anything that you want to accomplish, anything that you want to achieve, whatever kind of life you want to build. I always tell my students it starts with mindset. So in lieu of actually having Carol here because she was so influential to you, right, I actually like to really start before we get to the performance paradox in your work, just kind of lay the basic foundation of understanding the importance of mindset and the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Absolutely. And yes, I, I agree with you. For me, growth mindset and fixed mindset has been completely life transforming. And for me, when I first learned about Carol's work, which was in 2007, I read her book and I met her. I just uncovered a lot of insights about how I was getting in my own way and how I was preventing myself from achieving things that I cared about and how I was reacting defensively to feedback. So a lot of people have heard the term growth mindset. And when we ask people what a growth mindset means, uh, for those kind of who know a little bit about it or even a lot, sometimes we hear it's about working hard or it's about persevering. And a growth mindset is none of those things. A growth mindset is not a behavior, it's a mindset. A mindset is a belief. It's a belief about the nature of human beings. Specifically, it's the belief that we can change and that other people can change. And that's important. So it's as opposed to a fixed mindset, which is when we believe that we are fixed the way we are. Like for example, if we think that we are naturals at something, like we're natural leaders or we're natural athletes, that's a fixed mindset. Or I'm not a math person, that's a fixed mindset. Like I can't get better as a leader, I can't get better at math either because I'm really good or I'm really bad or in the middle. And what, what happens when we're in a fixed mindset is first, we don't do anything to try to get better because we're starting with the assumption that we can't get better, right? The reason people do things well is because they either have it or they don't have it. So it's not because of what they do to get better. We also then tend to not take on challenges that we can learn from and that can lead us to greater performance. We react defensively to feedback when other people do things that are not like good things, like they, for example, do something passive aggressive. We tend to label them and think of them as evil, for example. So we tend to respond by retaliating, engaging in warfare. So, so it leads to conflict uh, and a growth mindset leads to us trying to get better, to soliciting feedback, to better listening to feedback, to asking more questions, to get it better learning what other people's preferences are, better engaging in conflict resolution so that we can better build relationships and collaborate. So there's a ton of behaviors that result from either having this assumption of humans being fit, you know, fixed the way they are, or humans being able to change. And that is, like you said, a foundation of both learning and achievement. The simplest example that I can give of where I believe that I was largely not raised, but just kind of conditioned based on the traditional education system in a fixed mindset comes down to IQ tests and standardized scores, right? I could literally go for four hours and do my own live impromptu TED talk about all the feelings that I have about traditional education and all the things that are broken about it. But as I was growing up, it was you're in the smart group, you're in the dumb group, you're in the special group based on this score. And by the way, this number doesn't change. Your IQ is always gonna be this number. You're always gonna be in this range in your standardized test score and your brain is fixed. And as soon as I learned about neuroplasticity, where literally on a neural level, your brain can change, but just the belief that if I not just apply effort and I grit my way through and I persevere, but I change my belief that things can change. And as I learn, I can improve. My entire life literally changed 
from uh, and I was in the the gifted group, which you know seems like it would be a blessing, but it can also be a curse because that's always just the expectation. Anytime I failed, well, then that means like it, using your words, you know, usually I was a winner, but then when something wrong, I became a loser. It became about identity and not just about performance or lack of skills or lack of experience. So I don't want to go into this too deeply, and I want to get to your work as soon as we can. But just back up my assertion as somebody that does this for a living in the academic world about how poorly we are trained in our current educational model to understand the value of mindset. Absolutely. Right on. Like, you know, just think about the the term gifted. You know, you were in the gifted group. So that kind of implies that something was endowed on you and you are special. And that's why you can do these things at a higher level. And when you're doing those things successfully and getting straight A's, you might feel good about yourself. I am gifted. And that might might like raise your self-esteem. But the problem, like you said, is when things get harder later and we don't get an A or we start a job that is difficult or we get some difficult feedback, then we tend to say, oh, my God, like this either this person is not saying something that's true. We're trying to react defensively, protect our ego or, OK, I'm, I'm not this good, so I'm going to shy away from this challenge. I'm going to stay within my comfort zone. So we become more fragile. Right. We stay within what we know how to do and what's comfortable to us. So there's a lot of things about the education system that tend to put us into a fixed mindset. And also, you know, the, a lot of these things are unintentional. We, we all have kind of our best intentions also in our homes, right? In our homes, we might praise kids for being smart, for example. You know, they do something well and quickly and, and without effort and without mistakes. And we say, you're so smart. And we, we do it with our best intentions, thinking that will raise their confidence and they'll be able to go after hard things because they're smart, but the reverse happens, right? They shy away from challenges. They want to continue showing and proving rather than improving. So they stay within what they have already done well so that they can continue to be told that they're smart. And when they encounter challenges, they are a lot less resilient. They shy away. They don't want to try anymore because if they try and fail, it makes them feel not smart. What I learned through years and years of conditioning, I learned how to do what I was told, show up on time, complete all of my homework, complete it at a high level, because I do have a certain scholastic aptitude, right? That is just an advantage that I was given by genetics. But given all of that, what I really learned how to do was the formula and the habits necessary for a certain type of success. And then the giant rude awakening that I had was that the most fundamental skill that I had never learned, that was never developed, that was never impressed upon me, is the skill of learning how to fail. I was really good at success, and I was horrible at failure, and that was when I started to dig into this idea of mindsets and realized that failure is the key. Like that, that's the secret weapon. So now when people ask me, you know, what's different about you and how, what differentiates the, the success that you've had in Hollywood or as an online podcaster or entrepreneur, the first thing I say is there's nothing special about me. I am no different than anybody else. The difference is I'm willing to fail faster than you are. That to me has been the key, which was the shift from fixed to growth mindset. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you brought genetics. And to, to that point, growth mindset doesn't mean that everybody kind of is born the same and we're all just a product of our environment and what we do. We There are genetic differences. But the, the thing is that each of us can significantly get a lot better in anything or in, in lots of different skills and qualities. 
And, and, the, and if we focus on that, then we grow a lot more and we achieve a lot more. And the people who become the best in the world, they all work to get better because if you don't, then you're never going to be, you know, a very, very skilled person. And to your point about failure, yes, you know, when I was doing the research for this book, I learned I knew mistakes and failure were were important. I've talked about even those in those in the TED talks that you talked about, but I didn't know how important it was. So it turns out that you you mentioned neuroplasticity. Our brain, a brain's neuroplasticity works from just experience up to the point of our mid-20s. So if we're just walking around the world and we're seeing things, our brain is reconfiguring just from observing and being part of those experiences until our mid-20s. From our mid-20s on, the way the neuroplasticity works kind of changes. And then that doesn't happen as much. And what the way that it actually changed, the brain changes is from mistakes and failures. So it's from making predictions that turn out not to be true and that surprise us. And we realize, oh, wow, like this is something that I thought worked differently. And now I realize that things are actually different than I thought. So to your point, whether it's entrepreneurship or, you know, creative endeavors, I mean, those are two fields where failure is so important because we are going into uncharted territory, right? We have to test, we have to iterate. And and that's about experimentation, doing things that may or may not work and learning from failure and getting better along the way. So one of the things, uh, one of the most important questions that I want to make sure we answer by the end of this conversation is how do we create an environment and create habits that are going to lead to this consistent learning and failure and growth? But I feel like that's a little bit further down the road, so I want to put a pin in it. Uh, but what I want to dig into a little bit deeper, and this is going to be kind of threading your narrative with my narrative, so I'm going to do this as deftly as possible. But I believe one of the areas where the education system has massively failed us, and it has really helped succeed for those, you know, the, the top, not even 1%, but 0.1% of people that are owning all of these companies and corporations and businesses, is the amount of specialization. Where from preschool, the first question we're asked is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then we have to be in a specific magnet program by middle school. We have to know what our college is by high school, and we have to have a major by the time we're 19 years old and know the, the direction of the rest of our life, which has served the factories and the industrialized system and the corporations very, very well. But I see this transition now back to generalization with the advent of artificial intelligence and just frankly, the economy in general becoming much more gig-based and having more of a broad diversification of skills. So I want to get a sense from your mind how we can apply this idea of the growth mindset to navigating all of this, but also at the same time helping us better understand how much of this really is I just need a different mindset and I can make anything happen versus I do have natural talent or aptitude because like you said, it's a little bit of both. But how do you just not fall into the trap of, well, I'm just a naturally gifted athlete, so I guess that's what I need to work on versus, well, I'm not as naturally gifted in this thing, but I'm more passionate about it. We're really going to have to diversify both what we're already naturally good at and the things that we have to learn. So I realize there's a lot there, but the simplest version of it is how do we apply these ideas, these two different mindsets to lead us to deciding what we want to focus on next and thus learning more about this performance paradox, which is where we're going, you know, right after this. Sure. You know, it's, um, there's a lot there. Yeah. So let me start kind of with this education system. I completely agree with you. So first of all, schools haven't been tasked with developing learning skills, right? Which is, the, I think the most important thing that schools could do is 
develop us as lifelong learners, people who are skilled in continuing to develop whatever we want to develop, you know, throughout our lives and our interests are going to change, our passions are going to change. We're going to be, you know, discovering new things and wanting to do new things in the world. How do we develop those skills as we go through life? Schools are not designed to do that. They're not even like tasked to do that. That's not the goal. So I, like many other people, I was a very curious and creative little kid until I got to school. You know, when I got to school, then I started learning things that were irrelevant, that were not useful. And it would it became kind of road learning that where the goal was just to get a good grade and pass the test and go to the next level. And so the most influential thing that I learned in school is that learning sucks, is that learning is boring, it's irrelevant, it's useless. And what a tragedy, right? And so I think in the ideal world, we would want to just nurture that. And, and there's research that shows that the number of questions that kids ask every day drop precipitously when they start going to school, right? Because they become a lot less curious. And so ideally, you know, we would want to be in an environment where we can identify what we're interested in and explore and tinker and do projects around those things and just pursue our interests, right? So to your point about, you know, how do I determine what I want to do in my life and what I want to pursue. I think that what we're interested in, what intrigues us is so, so powerful and we can become great at it because becoming great at something requires huge commitment. It requires passion. It requires thinking about these things, not just at work, but when we're having fun and when we're going you know, out for a walk with friends or whatever. And it also doesn't mean that we are only focused on that narrow thing, to your point. Like the breath is so, so important. If you look at the Nobel Prize winning scientists, they're about 20 times more likely to engage in hobbies in the arts and the performing arts than other successful scientists or the general public. And so, you know, Einstein played the violin. So when we cultivate our curiosity to ask questions, to wonder, to learn things that we have never been exposed to before, first, we connect things that have never been connected before, which leads to creativity and innovation. It gives us ideas for the craft that we do, right? But also it makes the process so much more joyful. It makes it, it makes work and life more full and more interesting and more fulfilling because we're constantly discovering and being in awe and amazement. So the understanding that the focus of our attention, that we can learn how to do the things that interest us and intrigue us and explore those things and, and tinker with, you know, what might be here and what might this lead me to, or just for the benefit of, hey, I'm curious about this question. Let me spend an hour or an afternoon looking into it or asking questions about it. That leads to, you know, incredible fruits afterwards. Uh, if we didn't have another uh, 64 minutes, I'd say that was a mic drop moment and it was amazing having you here today. I'm already done. I've already I've reached all of my objectives and you completely hit a home run on my point. And I've never heard somebody put it so succinctly and I'm probably going to outright steal this is that the only thing that schools taught us is that learning sucks. That is such a perfect encapsulation of it, because what we don't learn how to do is learn. We learn how to regurgitate. We learn how to retain information. And given all the technology we have available to us today, all of that is absolutely useless. We don't need to retain information. We have phones that can do that. We now have AI that can even synthesize basic ideas that have been synthesized before. Our ability to learn how to learn is what's going to set us apart and allow us to chart these new paths. And the reason that I'm really hitting this point home is because I hear so many of my students and my clients that say, why am I struggling so much? And I reset the expectation 
you shouldn't know how to do this because you've never been taught it. And that's a big aha moment where it doesn't matter if you're 20 or 30 or 50, just because you've been doing it for a long time doesn't mean you get better at it, which is the perfect segue to understanding the difference between learning and performance. Because I have this debate all the time, but I didn't have the framework that I have now because of you. So talk to me about what you call the performance paradox. Sure. And just to be very clear, because I think you and I both, we don't mean that educators are evil or are doing a poor job. It's just that the system is not set up or is the goals of schools and education is not to develop lifelong learners. That's not in the standards. That's not in what schools are being asked to do, right? And there's a lot of systems around other goals that make the educator's role, you know, difficult. But, you know, that that said, we can continue to grow as educators, just like in, in any profession, we can get better at what we do. We yeah. can work within the system and within the confines and the constraints and foster a growth mindset and creativity and passion yeah. in our students too. I, I'm, I'm glad yeah. you said that. And I actually, I, I want to interrupt you for a second because I need to emphasize this too. For those that don't know, my wife is a third grade teacher. My father is a teacher. My mom was a teacher. My sister is a fourth grader, third, I don't know, some elementary school teacher. So I just, I want to make, make it clear that if anybody didn't get the sense from me and you helped correct me. This isn't about the teachers. This is about the system and the way the system is designed. And I've, I've had this conversation with my wife more than once, where I tell her that the vast majority, especially now with the advent of AI, the, the vast majority of what you're teaching your students in third grade, they're not going to be able to use and it's not going to be useful to them when they graduate high school. The reason you're such a great teacher is you instill the belief in your students that they can you instill the belief that somebody cares about them and wants to see them succeed, but her teaching, you know, civics or whatever, this or that or the other thing, the system itself is the problem and not the teacher. So I'm glad you emphasize that because teachers and teaching is my entire livelihood. My problem is with the system. That's where my frustration is. Yes, and hopefully we'll continue to to change the system. And I, I've been to the White House a few times to convenings about this. And I do think that, you know, policymakers are making progress and will continue to make progress around this. And my wife was a second grade bilingual teacher. She's a professor of education now. So I am passionate about education as well. But one of the things that happens in school and the system, and this gets to your question about the performance paradox, is that very often what students are doing in school is doing something for a grade, right? They're tasked with something that is going to get graded and it's going to get a number or a letter on it. So what message does that send? That sends the message that what we want kids to do is to be able to be doing everything well all the time, ideally perfectly. Ideally, we want them to get 100 on everything they're doing every day. And that sends the message that we want them to be doing things they already know how to do, not things that they don't know how to do, that they're grappling with, that they're making mistakes with, like to your point about failure, so that we can learn from where those mistakes are, examine them and say, oh, this is where I went wrong. This is how I can get better, right? And so instead, in school, to start in schools, and then we can talk about kind of what the implications are for us now. Instead, what, what could happen in school is most of the time should be focused on learning, which means students should be doing things they don't know how to do, making lots of mistakes, Think, talking about those mistakes and examining them. So if, if we put a problem in front of a class and a lot of people don't know how to do it, we shouldn't ask who knows how to do it, have them explain how to do it, and then move to the next problem. Instead, we should... Think about all the and examine all the problems that happen and, and examine them and think about 
where did this go wrong and what can we learn from this? And let's think about this mistake and let's let's talk about mistakes a lot more than let's talk about how to do it right, right? And so the distinction between those two things is what I call the learning zone, which is when we're focused on learning. Uh, we're, we're doing things we don't know how to do. We're going beyond what we know. That's when we're focused on improvement. And the performance zone, which is when we're, we're assessing ourselves, we're testing ourselves, we're trying to get things done. So to make an analogy in sports, for example, if you're playing a championship final, it's a high stakes game where that you want to win. You're in your performance zone. You're trying to do the things you already know how to do well. If you're having trouble with your top spin serve in tennis, you're going to avoid that move during the match because all you want to do is win. But then after the match, you're going to go to your coach and say, coach, I have to work on my top spin serve. Let's let's spend an hour working on that. That's a very, very different activity and area of attention than what we do during the match. And the best tennis players or any athlete, they get so good because they spend a lot of time in the learning zone working on how to improve, which is different from executing and performing. And for most of us in work and life, we get stuck in the performance zone, just always trying to do things as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes, and that leads to stagnation. So the performance paradox is the counterintuitive phenomenon that if we just get fixating on performing, our performance suffers. Our results are lower if we're only focused on performance. Yeah, and uh, the counterintuitive thing about this that I found so fascinating, both in the work that you've done, but just discovering this over and over and over, is we make the assumption that those that are new to something, they're the ones that are doing all the learning. Then you cross this threshold where now you're elite. But the craziest thing that I've seen over and over and over across multiple disciplines and music and sports and everything else is that it's the absolute best that whether they've won or lost, they break down the game tape, so to speak, afterwards. And you gave an example uh, in your TED talk about Beyonce, because you think, well, if there's anybody that's achieved a level of perfection and only needs to show up performing, it's Beyonce. She's the best in the world at what she does, or maybe now number two to Taylor Swift. But if we're talking about Beyonce, she clearly just chills out after she's done with the performance, right? Right. No. So yeah, Beyonce, after each performance, she goes to her hotel room and she reviews tape. She reviews a video of the performance. She makes notes, uh, lots of notes about what could be improved, whether it is her hair or her movement or the lights or people around her. And she shares notes with everybody in her team so that the next day they can work on some things before the next performance. So it is the performance is the performance zone. They're trying to do things as best as they can. But then afterwards, they are doing things very deliberately to get continue to get even better. And those people, to your point, that are fantastic and the best at what they do, they continue to work to get even better. So having said that, if we're looking at whether it's Beyonce, like Kobe, LeBron, they're all the kind that like they they win the championship and the next morning they're figuring out what do I need to do better between now and next year, which to, you know, a lay person would seem absurd. What one of the, the things that drives me crazy, and I'm going to do my best to knock it on a soapbox and turn into a grumpy old man, but I might for a few minutes here and there. It's when I see people that are more seasoned or experienced in an industry, and I see this in Hollywood all the time, that are responding to questions or comments in social media. They say, ah, I've been doing this for 30 years. And my response is, it doesn't mean you've been doing it well for 30 years or been doing it right. Like, I've had a driver's license since I was 16. I'm not ready for NASCAR, right? So let's dig a little bit deeper into the differences between the learning and the performance zone so people realize that experience does not equal expertise or the fact that they're moving forwards. Absolutely. You know, it's 
to your point about the difference between experience and expertise, there's research out of Harvard. They took over 60 research studies that looked at the, the relationship for, for doctors, for medical doctors, between experience, which is the years on the job, and expertise, which is how good they are at their job, their patient outcomes. And what they found is that on average, the more years of experience that medical professionals were on the job, the worse their patient outcomes. They actually became worse over time. On average, obviously not everybody, there are doctors that have great learning habits and get better over time and better and better, just like Beyonce or Kobe, right? But on average, they got worse because they're so busy executing, performing, seeing patients, right? Diagnosing, prescribing, treating that, and they do it with their greatest care because they care about patients and they want to help people, right? But what happens is that first the world changes, right? New technologies happen, the world changes in different ways, and we're kind of staying stuck behind. But second, they forget information that's relevant to infrequent diagnosis so that when somebody comes with an infrequent illness, they might not realize it, whereas somebody who is kind of fresh out of school kind of will remember that better because they just studied it more recently. So that happens in, you know, whether it's in chess or in surgery. And so there's a difference, right? It doesn't mean you can become really skilled pretty young if you're a really great learner. And of course, you can always continue to get better, but it involves being deliberate about continuing to get better. And to your point about when leaders, whether they have 30 years on the job or two years on the job, when leaders act like know-it-alls, that's very detrimental to their teams and their organizations because that's what other people emulate, right? People say, okay, in this organization, what, what gives you status is to know a lot and to be a know-it-all and to be sure of yourself and not to listen to other people. So that's what I'm going to do, do too. And so when it becomes know-it-all organization, you know, it, it just, the organization doesn't change, it doesn't learn and goes under. Yeah. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo-driven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt 
Diplomat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height-adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. So uh, this is not a, a thread that I want to pull on because I don't know this for certain, but I have a feeling the mention of this alone could lead to a two-hour conversation. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to something that's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Because the Dunning-Kruger effect, when you think I know it all, that's actually peak stupidity. And the more you learn something, the more you realize how little you actually know. And this is going to be a little bit of a deviation from that because, again, this could be an entire conversation. But one thing that I want to bring up specifically about the value of learning and how it relates to performance, I had a realization, give or take, maybe five to 10 years ago, that I had crossed that threshold from I was no longer learning and growing and excited about the craft and learning new tools. I was now the curmudgeon that didn't want to learn the new tools. And I realized I don't want to be in the learning zone with what I'm doing anymore. I'm at a high level in the performance zone, but as soon as I lost the interest in going back to the learning zone, that's when I said, it's time to do something else. And now that I've very much diversified, not just editing television and movies, but doing the podcasting, doing the writing, doing the coaching, doing American Ninja Warrior, all these other things, the value that I've seen in diversification is a hundredfold because there's always something new for me to learn that motivates me to learn something else. And uh, you may be familiar with uh, David Epstein, who wrote the, the book Range, another person Great on book. my podcast bucket list. I really want people to better understand both the value of diversification and this first mover's advantage, specifically now that we're moving into this world of the AI revolution for creatives. And the reason that I think it's so important to bring you on to talk about this is because the most important thing we have to be willing to embrace in this transition is learning and failure. So talk to me a little bit more about how this diversification of interest and this desire to learn ultimately is going to allow people to learn better, but it might not be the straight and narrow path right to the shore. Great. Well, if I had a podcast, uh, David Epstein would also be in my podcast bucket list as Carol Dweck. That's a great book, Range. And so to your point, you know, you got to the point where you didn't have that passion to continue to learn the skills that you already were executing at a very high level of performance. One thing that I want to point out about that is that a growth mindset or a learning orientation doesn't mean that we need to be learning everything all the time. In fact, that, that's not effective, right? To try to just learn everything all the time, that that's just doesn't make sense. We, we have to be strategic. I mean, exploring and tinkering broadly and following our curiosity is great. But also, if we want to become great at something that we're interested in and passionate about, being also having some focus and choosing what things we want to get better at is also something that's of a lot of value. So what I heard from you is you developed some great skills in, in editing and production and, and media and Hollywood, and you probably use a lot of those skills today, right? You've, you have expanded and you have learned new skills and, and used them in different ways and, and connected those new skills with the, with the skills that you built earlier on in your career. And that's, that's wonderful. So there are things where we might make the choice like you probably have of, okay, in this particular area, I've become really good at 
I'm I'm going to be more in the performance zone in these skills because I'm going to focus my learning zone on these other skills. And the combination of the two are going to bring something special, you know, a podcast, Optimize Yourself, that is going to be kind of different and add some, some unique value to the world. Um, so, yes, when we broaden our horizons, there's a lot of benefits that come from that. Uh, we connect the disconnected. We have a greater understanding also of how systems work. And systems thinking is a really important way to solve problems and to, to lead to creativity, right? It's, we understand how the world works, how, how different things connect to each other, and that enables us to better contribute in, in ways that are different than if we just work in silos in a, without a broader view of the world. Yeah. And uh, speaking of connections and a totally shameless plug in to help uh, the listener navigate a couple of these things, I could talk about systems for days and days, and I have. So I'm going to link to the episode that I did talking to James Clear about habit building and systems building. I'm also going to link to an episode that I did with Joey Caffone that's all about the laws of creativity and how you can break down creativity is not just generating new and original ideas, but combining existing ideas. So I just want to make sure anybody that's like, ooh, this is fascinating and I want to go deeper, until that David Epstein episode exists, and it will exist, trust me, at some point, but I want to send people both to James Clear to learn about systems, Joey Caffone to learn about creativity. But going back a second, I think this is going to be really valuable to hit this point home where you had said, you don't have to learn all the time. You still need to perform. Here's the realization that I had, and it took a while to get there. When I was younger, yeah, there were times of performance, like I've got a big episode or a big film, and I got to be in performance mode, and I got to cut, and I got to meet deadlines. But as soon as the pressure was off, it was always what's next? What can I learn next? What's the new tool? Or I'm going to watch action movies all day long to understand how action montages are cut together or music choices are made. But then the transition happened where as soon as I was out of performance mode working on a big TV show, it was, I want to learn WordPress and I want to understand how to build a podcast. And there's a part of me that's like, oh, what is wrong with you? You're so scatterbrained. Can you just, can you stay focused on the task at hand and keep and stay in your lane, right? And I didn't realize how valuable now in hindsight, 10 years later, that diversification was. And I started to follow that intuition more and more, where if I have this idea that I want to learn or a skill I want to develop, it's not a matter of stay in your lane. That's not what you do anymore. This is the thing you do. I can't imagine if I hadn't pulled on the thread. Well, what if I wanted to learn to become an American Ninja Warrior? That one thread changed my whole life, but I didn't believe I had permission because it's always about do your one thing and stay in your lane. But the level of diversification that I've gotten has served me so well, but it really was that realization of I want to learn. I just don't want to learn this thing anymore. And it took me a while to give myself permission to do that. Yeah, I can resonate with what you're saying. And, and one thing I wanted to point out is, you know, we can think about the learning zone, the performance zone as we're either learning or performing. And sometimes that's true. We can dedicate sometime only to learning and sometime only to performing. But for most of us, the, the biggest opportunity is in combining the two and learning while doing. We don't actually learn by doing, simply by doing something. We learn only if we're novices. Once we become proficient, just doing something is going to not make you get better unless you do it in a way that's deliberate to improvement. So we need to be uh, trying something different, right? To taking, making, doing an experiment, soliciting feedback, thinking about the mistakes that we're making and what we can learn from them. Those are things that are different than simply doing. But, but for most of us, you know, we, we're so busy getting so much done. It's, it's about paying, trying new things as we're doing those things, experimenting 
and tinkering with new ways of working so that we can get better over time. So that we're combining learning and, and performing at the same time as we're getting things done. Sometimes it is time to just focus on performing and not worry about learning. And those times are A, either when the stakes are really high, right? If you're doing something that if you make a mistake, it's going to have big consequences. You're going to try to minimize mistakes. So you're going to try to focus on what you know works. So that's one. And the second is sometimes we can make kind of a tactical decision to just focus on performance when the short-term goals are really important. You know, we have this week, we have to get this really important thing done and and I don't have enough time. I'm not going to sleep enough. So I'm just going to focus on performing and getting it done. But if we do that every week, then we stagnate. I was going to say that's basically the story of most people's lives right now. Have you seen my calendar? Where exactly would you like me to fit learning when all I'm doing is keeping my head above water? It's performance mode 24-7. As soon as you meet one real unrealistic expectation, well, then today's miracle becomes tomorrow's expectation. Rinse, lather, and repeat. So how do I learn more effectively in this environment of doing, doing, doing 24-7? Yes. The first step is is the realization that if we are in that hamster wheel, if we are treading water, the realization that if we continue in the same way, we're going to continue in the hamster wheel and treading water, right? So that's the first step is, is identifying the problem and identifying that if I find a way to embed a little bit of learning every day or every week, and I, I start getting better, then I'm going to be able to get more results in less time, which is going to make a bit more time for both learning and performance. It's going to make even a little more time, right, to get more results in less time. And then it's going to get easier and easier to accelerate and get better over time. I call that the flywheel of competence. So the flywheels are like really heavy wheels that are hard to start turning. But when you start turning them, like just the angular momentum is easier to, to turn and turn and turn until they become unstoppable. It's hard to stop them, right? And that's when we start embedding kind of learning habit into the way we do things and the way that we live and we work, then we get into the flywheel of competence and things become easier and easier over time for us to become more skilled. And so the way to start is to start with something quick and simple, right? And and it doesn't take a lot of effort to your point about James Habit, James Clear and, and Atomic Habits or BJ Fogg and, and Tiny Habits. You know, we can identify what is something really quick and easy that I can start doing every day that is doesn't take much time at all. And then that's going to start a seat, right? And it's going to be a lot easier for us to expand from there. Something really quick that any of us can do every day that I think is really powerful is to remind ourselves every morning of what one thing we're working to improve. Just like write it down a piece of paper, look at it at the same time in the morning every day. That's gonna see your intention to get better at something. It's gonna help you notice opportunities to get better at that throughout your day as you go about your day. And, and that's gonna prime a growth mindset and the learning zone. Uh, and that's a great way to start. <laughs> it's funny because we're basically going to be establishing a table of contents for all of my favorite episodes. For anybody that wants to learn more about the one thing, visit my episode with Jay Papazan talking all about the one thing. Um, either you've reviewed all of my episodes already or clearly you and I are operating on the same wavelength. But this is the foundation of everything that I teach is you got to break it down to little pieces. And I have found that for me, and I think for most of the students in my program, that little place to start is a podcast interview just like this one. 
where you hear the the conversation, we're going to talk for 90 minutes and somebody's going to come away with one little kernel of an idea and they're going to say, I want to go deeper into it. So maybe they join a mailing list, maybe they do a workshop and then all of a sudden they've been in my community for three years and they don't even know where it started. It started with that one thing. I'm just going to listen to a podcast and force myself to learn rather than if, if I'm in the car or exercising or doing dishes or whatever, I'm just going to use music or distractions. If you switch that switch in your brain to say, nope, I'm in learning mode the tiniest little bits are going to lead to a lot more momentum. Like you said, the, the flywheel effect, because I too, I'm, I often get into the trap of man, my entire calendar is all work, 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 doing, doing, doing. The time that I feel like I'm breathing is when I'm in learning mode, when I'm reading a book, when I'm listening to a podcast while I'm taking a walk, that to me is re-energizing. So I, I find a way very meticulously with the math included, how can I balance the amount of hours in the week between I'm in doing mode or as you would say in performance mode versus learning mode. So let's assume that we've gotten past this idea of there's no way I have enough time and people start to embrace this idea of doing learning. There are two things that we would both agree that they're gonna run up against fairly quickly, which is how do I deal with the different types of mistakes that I'm going to make and how do I start receiving and giving feedback? So let's start to break down different types of mistakes because I know that it's not just, oh, I screwed up and I failed. You've created a great friend framework for understanding the different types of mistakes that we're going to encounter when we're in learning mode. Yeah, sometimes, you know, as I've gone through my journey, sometimes I've heard mistakes described as mistakes are wonderful. We want to make mistakes and learn from them, which in some ways resonates with me. But it's also true that mistakes can be detrimental. Mistakes can lead to death. They can lead to people getting hurt. It can lead to, you know, losing customers. And so, getting a little bit clear about what are different kinds of mistakes and how do we want to engage in them and how, do, how can we best learn from different types of mistakes is helpful. So in chapter five, it's all about kind of four different types of mistakes. One is the stretch mistakes. The stretch mistakes happen when we're trying something we haven't done before or going beyond the, what we can already do well. And we're tinkering, we're trying new skills, we're experimenting, and we are bound to make mistakes because we are going beyond what we know. And those are the, you know, those are fantastic mistakes to be deliberate about, right? We want to figure out what are the times and spaces where I can take risk, where I can experiment, where I'm not going to like create a lot of damage, right? Because I've created safety islands that I can tinker and experiment with and be creative around, right? Uh, so those are the stretch mistakes. We, we want to be proactive about making stretch mistakes by taking on things that are challenging and experimenting. Then there's the high stakes mistakes, which are mistakes that if we make those mistakes, you know, there's going to be negative, big negative consequences. And so we want to try to minimize that, right? Beyonce is, is not setting out to try something new and experimenting when she's in front of 80,000 people. She'll do that like backstage, you know, where she's working with her team. And so that's the low stakes versus the high stakes. And so when the stakes are high, especially when people can get hurt or when, you know, our, our company can go down, we want to put our best foot forward. But that should be a much, very small percentage of the time in, in, for most of us in our job, unless we're, you know, in charge of security at a nuclear plant or something like that. And then there's the sloppy mistakes, which is when we do something poorly and it's something that we should know better. We already know how to do this thing and we just made a sloppy mistake. And often when we think about 
why did I do this sloppy mistake? How can I prevent this in the future? Often the answer is about kind of focus, about I was trying to think about too many things at the same time, and I need to think about what systems I put in place to be able to foster more focus. So if, if it's important, if it's meaningful, and I really want to try to avoid that mistake, I want to think about how do I avoid this mistake? The answer is often, you know, how do I foster more focus? That said, for me, when I make sloppy mistakes, often they're also a source of joy. There's something that, okay, like I was focused on this other thing. I made a sloppy mistake in the periphery. It's not important. It's funny. Let's just laugh about it. I sometimes share it with family or friends, post a picture of it on Facebook, whatever it is, right? Uh, so mistakes can also bring us joy and kind of humanity to our lives. And then the fourth kind of mistake is the aha moment mistake which is when we do something as we intended, but then we realize that it was the wrong thing to do. We realized there was something we were missing, there was a blind spot, and what we did created a consequence that we didn't expect. And those mistakes are precious, you know, that we can learn so much from aha moment mistakes. So when they happen, we can't proactively elicit them like we can elicit stretch mistakes, but when they happen, we need to treasure them and think about what can I learn from this gift of this this aha moment mistake that I just made. Yeah, and I think that just about anybody in a creative field, especially those that are editors like myself, the aha moment mistake is the one that we wish we knew how to replicate. It's where, oh, I'm gonna put this in here and this together. Oh crap, I hit the wrong button. Whoa, what just happened, right? Like I, I never in a million years would have thought to put shot A next to shot X, but yes. this is the crux of the entire scene, right? Those aha moments are amazing. They're hard to replicate. And I've I found a couple of practices and ways to make them to get quote unquote lucky a little bit more often. But you're right that they're they're kind of like serendipity. But the one of these four that I think is the most important for people to really both understand and embrace is the stretch mistake. Because I've done entire presentations where I talk about there's literally one key to success in achieving any goal in any field. I firmly believe this. You can simplify it down to you find the hardest version of what you can do and you do something slightly harder because it's going to force you to fail, but you're going to iterate in a safe space and you're going to grow faster. And I learned this lesson through learning how to become an American Ninja Warrior. So the, the simple example I get is if you have a rope and you've never climbed a rope before and you're thinking, well, I don't know, maybe I could climb 10 feet. Well, great. Your goal right now is climb 15 feet right? Because you're not going to do it the first time, but you're going to learn all of the obstacles standing between you and the goal and you can iterate faster. But you're also going to be in a place where the failure is kind of fun. So one of the two years that I got the casting call to be on the show, my entire reel was my failures. It was me falling over and over and over and over and over and over because that's a huge part of my story and how it leads to growth. And of course, I capped it off with, well, you know, I've learned a few things and I can do some cool stuff too. But most of it was here, all the things that I've done wrong. And I didn't realize how valuable deliberately designing a life around stretch mistakes was. So what have you found either through your own work or through research about the value in creating these stretch mistakes? Absolutely. So what you describe, part of what you describe is, is called deliberate practice, right? Which was discovered and coined by Florida State professor Anders Ericsson, who wrote the book Peak. And, you know, unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was another treasured mentor of mine. And, and I'm honored to build on his work. And, and what he found is that the people who become most skilled in their domains 
they engage in deliberate practice, which is just what you what you said, right? It's about identifying a specific sub skill that we want to improve. No, so it's not like I want to become a better ninja warrior. I want to get better at climbing the rope, right? So it's like a, it's a skill, and it's about identifying something slightly beyond what we can do, right? And trying it, failing, and figuring out how we can adjust. So if we're, for example, playing golf in when we're in a tournament on the range, we're trying to do things as best as we can, but on the course. But when we go to the, the range and we're practicing, we are testing different things. We're saying, okay, I, I want to try to use the, and I don't play golf, but I want to try to use the five club and I'm going to try to like tweak my swing in this particular way and see what that does. And that's probably going to lead the ball to go too much to the right. So I'm going to adjust my club a little bit to the left, right? And so we're making making mistakes and making adjustments based on what those mistakes do. The mistakes are feedback to us. And that is how the best people in the world get better. I, I'm curious, Zach, do you have an example on the creative field, right? On something where in, in your creative work of what kind of stretch mistakes could look like? Yeah, so I'm so glad you brought this up because I was going to actually talk about this anyways. Again, you and I totally on the same wavelength. And this was the difference between I'm in learning mode versus I'm in performance mode and I'm not interested in learning anymore. So when I started to learn more about peak performance and psychology and time management and all these things, what ended up happening in the evolution of my editing career is I was no longer in learning mode on how do I cut a better scene or how do I cut a cooler montage? It was how can I be more effective in less time? because I had kids and I didn't want to be in the edit suite for 80 hours a week. So I thought I'm going to gamify and I'm going to learn how to cut faster without the quality going down. So I started to ask myself the question, if I've got, you know, one hour of raw dailies or two hours or whatever it is, what's the fastest that I can cut it and still deliver the same results. So I was actually time blocking on my calendar and doing the math and setting timers. So it wasn't so much I wanna make better creative choices per se, it was how can I maintain my level of creative choices and do it in less time? And that completely changed the game and changed my entire career. And what I found by default is that forcing myself to fail forced me to learn new things about the creative process so that I was all of a sudden growing more creatively, even though all I wanted to do was become more efficient, I also became more effective. One of the things I did early in my career, and people think this is crazy because I have the, the, these diverging or now converging interests of athletics and creative work, I thought, well, what if I created drills? What if I actually drilled myself on these key skills? One of them was being as fast as possible, hitting all the hotkeys that I hit the most without looking down on my keyboard. And I would map my keyboard, not uh, mnemonically, where it's like S is for slip and B is for razor blade. It was more based on the distance of the keys to my fingers. How do I map it so I know that if I use my index finger all day long, what key should that be? And forcing myself to not use the mouse and I wasn't allowed to look at my keyboard to see can I get faster making these creative choices. And these all compounded to I was doing the same amount or more work at a higher level in way less time. So that's an example of how I was really creating these stretch mistakes to get better creatively. Fantastic. I can picture how you were cutting the video pitch for the American Ninja Warrior and how your skills between, you know, cutting video and athletics came together beautifully there. And the, what you bring about in terms of the keyboard is also an area that Anders Ericsson and his colleagues studied. And it's something that 
probably a lot of us can relate to because think about how many hours we spent writing kind of emails and writing documents over our lives. We spend so many, many hours doing like typing, but most of us having become world-class at it, even with, even though we spend so many, many hours typing, right? And so the people who become like twice as fast and twice as accurate as most of us, they spend like 10 to 20 minutes each day, fully concentrated, trying to type 10 to 20% faster than they're comfortable with. So they're making a lot of mistakes as they're trying to do that. And they examine what words led them to make mistakes and they practice the same thing the same way, but using text that leads them to make lots of mistakes. So the difficult words, they try to type those faster just for 10 to 20 minutes every day. And over time, they become so much better and so much faster, just like you did. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my Topomat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the Topomat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core 360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. It's funny because you're you're reminding me how big of a nerd I really am and I didn't realize it because I don't remember when it was. I think it was before I had kids, but it was probably give or take about 15 years ago. I would spend 30 minutes a day doing online games where you were gamifying how many words you could type per minute because I felt like I was really clunky on the keyboard. So I was like, nope, I'm going to play this game. What's my word count now? And it would be exercises like FFFG, FFFFFH. And it was actually really, really fun. It was like a nice diversion, but I got significantly better at typing more efficiently and typing faster. And you put all those things together, one of the pieces of feedback that I get all the time and have for years from producers and directors is they're like, I've never seen anybody do this faster than you do it. And again, it goes back to the beginning of the conversation. I'm not genetically gifted with the ability to edit fast. I drilled it over and over and over, not because I want to be faster, because I want to get the hell out of my office at the end of the day, right? Yeah. So there was a means to an end where I was willing to make those mistakes. But here, here's the next part that I think is so important for people to understand. Most of the mistakes that you're going to make, you're not going to realize you're making them unless you have somebody that's giving you feedback and iterating. 
So I want to talk a little bit more now about this process of how you can elicit feedback and how you can surround yourself and create a positive feedback loop. Because yeah, if you're on the golf course and you make a mistake, you can be all by yourself and you're like, oh, the shot didn't go far enough or it sliced to the left. But especially in creative fields, we have to learn how to take feedback but not turn it into criticism. So how can we learn to both ask for better feedback and give better feedback? Sure. So feedback is so powerful. I think it's probably the, the most powerful learning strategy in most workplaces because we are social beings, right? So we're collaborating, we're trying to create things to, to have an effect on other people, whether it's to entertain them or delight them or do any sort of both collaboration and effect on other human beings. And so what effect we have, we, we do something and we think that it's going to have an effect on other people, but it usually, we're usually a little off, right? It usually, like whether it is we create a different, better effect or a different, worse effect than we thought, there's usually something there for us to learn. And so by making what is in other people's mind visible to us, we can learn so much about how our behavior affects them. And the key, the most important thing is just to solicit feedback, to solicit feedback frequently and often from a variety of people, not just from one person. Because when we solicit people, solicit feedback, first of all, it puts us into a learning mindset, right? It reminds us that we want to learn. Second, it makes it easier for the other person to give us feedback because a lot of us are afraid to give feedback because the other person might react offensively. We might think they might not want feedback. So if you if somebody asks for my feedback, then it makes it a lot easier for me to give it. And usually the feedback's a lot more specific and useful. It's related to something that I want, that I'm curious about or want to learn about. So when I solicit feedback, I make it easy for, for other people to give it. Often when we solicit feedback, though, Often other people respond by saying that was great or, you know, that was wonderful. And so when when that happens, I say you know, that that's great. But can you say more about what was helpful? And especially if there's something that I can do better, like what is one thing that I could do better? Right. So pushing them a little bit. Can you give me some information either about kind of the things that are, that are worth particularly helpful so I know to continue doing them or ideally also something that I can change to try to get continue to get better. So we need to extract that a little bit from other people because often people are afraid because they think that you're going to react defensively. And when we give feedback, ideally, again, like the other person is listening it, but how we give it depends a lot on our relationship, our trust, you know, our common understanding of feedback. Like if people see feedback as something that is a sign of weakness, something that is a sign of incompetence, then if we give feedback, other people are going to just react defensively and, you know, they're going to get upset at us. So ideally, if we if we have colleagues that we work with or we have our family, we want to have conversations about this, about the learning zone, about feedback, what these things are, why we want them in our lives. So we get on the same page and we can start these conversations and develop habits of soliciting feedback and learning from one another. Yeah. So I, uh, let's assume that I completely and totally buy the premise of I need to solicit feedback. The big giant question that you kind of answered a little bit that I want to really pull this thread a lot deeper is how do I solicit feedback? And I really, I think it's a two-part question. The first of which, and this is something that I teach extensively in my program, and I say this over and over to my students, the quality of the answer that you get is going to be based on the quality of your question. So if your question is, what did you think? you're going to get a really crappy generic answer as opposed to, um, I was thinking that in this section, I wanted this result, like in a simple example, I really wanted you to laugh right there, but you didn't laugh. Can you give me a sense of why you didn't think that was funny? 
right? Well, that's going to come off as, ooh, that's a really good question. Let me break that down to help you. But then the second part beyond how do I ask the right questions to solicit feedback, it's how do I overcome the fear that I sound incompetent or it's embarrassing to have made mistakes or it's embarrassing to be asking for feedback at all because that means I'm imperfect and I should have this all figured out. So it's how do I ask these questions, but how do I overcome the fear of asking the question at all? Yeah, so a couple of things. So for example, when I do, I, I'm a public speaker, I do keynotes. After my keynotes, I want to solicit feedback, right? So often I embed the feedback into live polling. I use live polling to make the sessions interactive. And then the last question or the last two questions are for me to get feedback and to think about what worked what, what well and what, what I could improve. And that's embedded into the session. But whether I do that or not, I also want to later kind of solicit feedback from people who were there, who attended in conversation. And I could just say, you know, what could I do better? And that would be fine. But I say, uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of feedback. You know, I would love kind of your thoughts on what was helpful to you or what is one thing I could do better. And just I'm reminding them that feedback is something that we can all benefit from and that the most skilled people do, right? So that I don't come across as incompetent if they think that people who solicit feedback are not confident, right? So that's one thing is framing. So we want to get on the same page about what feedback is. And we can do that quickly when we're soliciting feedback. You know, as you know, I'm a big fan of feedback. You know, I would love your thoughts. Um, right now, and I spent the last three years writing this book, The Performance Paradox, and a key part of that was soliciting feedback. I mean, I had so many readers read things and, and provide feedback on the drafts. And even now that the book is ready and it's finished, I love to solicit feedback from readers to learn more about how it lands and how it's helpful or not to different people. So if I ask, what do you think of my book? That's really hard for people to like, it's a big question. It's almost like it's really difficult to answer, right? So the way that I'm soliciting feedback right now, I might find ways to get a better at soliciting feedback. But what I'm saying for people who want to read the whole book is what are the chapters that were most helpful to you and why? And are there some things that you wish I had gone deeper on in the book that I didn't go deeper on? Those are two mm -hmm. questions that I'm asking that I'm finding helpful when people answer. But I feel like the questions we ask might depend a little bit on what we're working on, what the situation is, what our relationship is with the person. But I'd be curious in your perspectives because I suspect that you have some other kind of insights and strategies around how to solicit feedback. I definitely do. And I love how you've turned this into you're the podcast host and I'm the guest. I love conversations like that. So yes, this is something that I thought about extensively. And again, I've done a lot of A-B testing in many rooms and trying different ways to ask similar questions. And what's the response from this director versus that director? And I agree that as we talked about already, the quality of the question is going to really dictate the quality of the answer. And one thing that I want to bring up to add to what you said is that the timing of the type of feedback matters as well, right? So my guess is the reason you formulated your questions about which uh, chapters resonated with you the most and what do you wish I had gone deeper on that I didn't, that feedback informs another book, right? Now let, let's imagine you asked what I believe to be a great question at the wrong time, right? So I'm gonna steal this question blatantly from one of my mentors, probably again, somebody in our similar circle, uh, Adam Grant. So Adam Grant creates what he calls a challenge network. And one of the questions that he asks, which has gotten me by far the best feedback I've ever had on speeches, on classes, on presentations, even if you enjoyed this, if you were forced to cut 20%, what would you take out? And individually, 
I probably wouldn't take most of the feedback. But what I notice are patterns. And when I ask 50 people the same question and one of them says, oh, well, this is the dumbest thing you mentioned. Like, well, 49 people said this is their favorite part of the presentation. So thanks, but no thanks. But if 15 people all said, it took me a little while to really get sucked in. Well, that means if I'm going to cut 20% or even just 10, it's probably in the beginning. So it's about asking a really specific question. But if you were to ask people now, if you went out to all the people with your finished published book, if I were to cut 20%, which would I cut? A little late for that question, isn't it? Already published. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, and that is, you remind me of a question that I sometimes ask you, which is in the keynotes I do. Sometimes I, I ask that question, you know, if you were to cut something, what would you cut? And that, that gives me very useful information. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something that I uh, have certainly used a lot as well, where sometimes it's thrust upon me by either a timing requirement or a studio or whatever it might be. But an example would be that if I'm cutting an episode of TV or cutting a movie and the general consensus is it's, it's just a little sluggish. It feels a little slow. Great. What are your suggestions? I don't know. I, I don't know what I would do with that. I just, I feel it, but I don't know how to, to tell you what the solution is. What I find, especially, and if we're going to dig deeper into this idea of how to ask the right questions and get the most effective feedback, what I think the mistake that most people make, and I see it mostly in my world of editing, but I think it can be applied almost anywhere. The question they're asking is, tell me what to do and give me the solution. The question needs to be, tell me what isn't working, and it's my job to solve it. So it's not a matter of, well, if the scene is too long, tell me what shots or what lines of dialogue you want cut. I don't know. Okay, well, tell me what feeling you didn't get that you wanted. I wanted the scene to move faster. Great. Let me figure out what the solution is. So I'm always pushing to get feedback on what isn't working and how do you feel that you're in. What are you feeling that you don't want to be feeling or what do you more? What is your experience of it versus tell me what to do? And I think the lazy version of feedback is give me the notes and give me the solutions and I'll execute them. Right. So that comes back to the quality of the question. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it also makes particular sense in kind of creative fields or you're the expert in your craft, right? And you want to create an effect on the person that you're talking to. So you're getting feedback on the effect you're having and you are the expert who's going to come up with a solution to the effect that you that you want to have. Mm-hmm. So I had put a pin in this before and we're really close to pulling this pin out. We're one question away, but I just, I want to frame up the where I want to end is I really want people to understand how to create a more effective learning environment and better systems. And you've broken down kind of these, these four basic steps. And I want to get to those because I love me some frameworks. Let's just take something really complex and simplify it. But there's one thing that I want to put in between that which is given the amount of information that we now have available to us and the amount of things that we need to learn or we want to learn, especially right now in creative fields, we are being bombarded with 87 different AI tools every single day. How do we actually distill down and what suggestions do you have for like, this is the thread that maybe I should pull. And then once we figure out what we wanna learn next, I wanna talk about how to create this high performance learning environment. I would love your thoughts on that because I feel like you probably had a lot of a lot of thinking around this. But what my reaction might be that we want to tinker broadly to get a sense of what kinds of tools are there out there and what might be most useful to me right now in in what I'm doing. What might be the greatest opportunity, and then tinker more with that tool, start using it, and figure out how how do I collaborate with this tool so that in combination with a tool, we can create something even better than I was able to do without a tool. So that's my reaction, but I love your thoughts on it. 
Yeah, so the the way that I would uh, break it down is very similar to a lot of things we've already talked about, is I would use this methodology of the one thing in conjunction with this idea of making a stretch mistake and going further outside my comfort zone. So like you said, I would start really broad. So if I go back nine or 10 years ago where I decided, I think it's time to start looking into a career transition simultaneously with really taking care of my health and my well-being, one morning it was a podcast about sleep. Another morning it was a podcast about nutrition. This was about fitness. This was about circadian rhythm. This was about time management. This is about time. Like so many different things coming at me, but it was kind of like I was at a buffet. It's like, I'm hungry for something new, but I don't even know what I like yet. So let me just eat a little bit of everything. But then all of a sudden I started to realize if I pull this lever and I really focus on this lever just for now, not I have to decide what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. But if I just pull this lever, I think I'm going to get more leverage, so to speak, and it's going to get me more results. But it's also the area where I'm most excited to be making mistakes and learning. So it's kind of that that intuition of like, this is like, for example, there was a point in which I'm like, I just want to do a deep dive into WordPress. And I made a really, really shitty first version of a website. But I was excited about making a shitty website because I was learning how WordPress works and how it thinks. And then as soon as I got to a point where I'm like, yeah, I've learned enough and I don't want to go any deeper and I don't want to learn code. Boom, here you go. You do WordPress for me, but I then had a language and I had a lingo. So for me, it's always about there's so many broad things to learn. Which one gets me the most leverage? But where am I the most excited to just screw up and like you said, tinker and make mistakes? Then all of a sudden that thread gets pulled. Like when I originally... I can't remember when exactly I discovered. It was a little bit less than a year ago, but when I discovered David Epstein's book, Range, it was just like, oh, I heard him on a podcast because of autoplay. I wasn't seeking out that idea at all. But all of a sudden, this kernel of the value of generalization, it just would not stop. It was like this little bug that was burrowing into the center of my brain. And I'm like, there's something here. And that led me to find other books and other topics and other conversations. And this is the only thread that I'm pulling right now. The time will come when I feel like I've, I've done what I want to do with this. What's the next thread? So for me, that's kind of how I decide what it is that I want to learn and focus on next. That makes sense. Uh, to expand on, on both our answers and it's something you touched upon, but I wanted to call out is when we're going broad and exploring lots of things, we a mistake that I have made in the past is that I've I've gone about doing that in isolation by myself to the detriment of not asking somebody who knows already a lot or who is more experienced like a mentor for ideas and for them to point me in some directions, right? And so getting advice from people who are more experienced, being mindful of their time, but getting some quick pointers and some lay of the land is really useful. And then the other thing that you pointed out is that the value of dividing and conquering or collaborating so that, you know, we don't need to become experts in everything that's important in our job. We can make decisions about, okay, this is one piece that I could learn how to do, but instead I'm going to collaborate with somebody who's really good at that so that I can focus on this other thing. Yeah. And the, the piece of that, that I want to just double, triple and quadruple down on, which is another one of the threads that I pulled is that the fastest path to go from failing all the time to starting to succeed all the time is having a mentor, having an expert that's done exactly what you want to do next. And one of the areas that I did a super deep dive on is how can I learn how to better communicate with and surround myself with the world's experts on the things that I want to learn. So the only thread I was pulling was how do I write an amazing cold outreach message 
to have anybody in the world mentor me on anything, which again, that was the one lever. I was dabbling with it and I had some students say, hey, can you look at my outreach email, give me thoughts? I'm like, I guess, I mean, it's not really my thing, but it'll give you feedback. And then all of a sudden it became a thing and then it became the foundation of everything that I teach. Because once you have this growth mindset and you want to learn something and this learning becomes addictive and you start to, to really get this flywheel moving, you don't want to sit around and have it take forever. You want to find somebody that can shorten your learning curve. So that was one of the areas that I really doubled down on is how do I surround myself with mentors? It's one of the reasons I've got a podcast, right? The podcast isn't generating a bunch of money for me. In fact, I barely break even, but the relationships that I build because I have these conversations is priceless compared to any sponsorship money or viewership or anything else. And that's a skill that I decided that I wanted to develop. And part of the skill that you developed, Zach, I think is kind of soliciting, like to, to your point about kind of how do I craft those messages to, to ask somebody whether they would be my mentor or, or help me in some way. And a lot of people trip around asking for help or making that ask because we are afraid of rejection, right? Mm -hmm. And it connects to your point earlier about soliciting feedback. We're afraid of rejection or of, you know, a comment that is not something that is a praise. And so we need to also kind of grapple with what feedback is, but also what asking for help is. And, and how do we frame what asking for help is so that we feel great about asking for help? And for me, you know, asking for help is a way to connect with somebody, just like you said, to get to meet somebody, to build relationships, to give somebody else the opportunity to contribute. Like I love to contribute to the world. Other people love to contribute to the world. If, if I can give them the opportunity to help me and to contribute to somebody else, a lot of people appreciate that if I am being respectful of their time and using their time in, in a good way. I've done my homework. I've been I'm thoughtful about what I'm asking them. And I'm making great use of their time. And in fact, uh, my book would not be there. We would not exist if I hadn't asked for help to somebody who has been mentioned in, in your podcast before, Chip Conley. I sent him an email asking him for help on something completely unrelated. And I didn't know him at all. And he, I just was hoping that he would reply by email and he suggested that we speak and have a 20 minute call. And in that call, he suggested that I write a book and he introduced me to a literary agent. And that's why I have a book now. So it is amazing how asking for help and what, what it can lead to and what kinds of adventures and learning and contributions it can, it can produce. Uh, anybody that's listening right now saying, oh my God, talk more about this. This is where we get this part 78 of our table of contents episode. Because I talk all about this idea that game recognizes game and A-gamers want to surround themselves with other, other A-gamers, which is probably in your compelling pitch why Chip saw the value in connecting with you and you weren't quote unquote bothering him or like, oh, I'm so desperate and I need your help. He sees a relationship that can be mutually beneficial. I talk about this extensively with Chase Jarvis. So once again, our table of contents episode, if you wanna go deep into this concept about how to connect with a mentor and build a genuine relationship, just look for the episode with Chase Jarvis. Otherwise I could literally talk about this for four hours, but we're running out of time. To your point, you know, Chip is a dear mentor and friend. And, you know, I know him really well, spent a ton of time with him. I've been to Modern Elder Academy and spent a week with him in Mexico. And so it it led to an incredible relationship just from asking for help. So yes, to your point, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so the, the final place that I want to end is the one that I've been promising this whole time. 
like I said, I love me some simplified frameworks. And you have this very simple kind of four-step uh, bullet points for these are the steps required for high performance in developing effective learning. I want to break down what these are. Can you mention the four steps? Yeah. So it's, it's this idea about that first, we have to believe that we can improve. Then we actually have to want to. Then we need to incorporate this deliberate practice and put ourselves in a low stakes situation. So essentially, it's everything we've talked about, but I want to boil it down to just give me the steps, give me the checklist, because I think that we've already talked about them, but I want to package them succinctly. Absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes uh, growth mindset is painted as a silver bullet, right? If we just develop the belief that we can change, then everything changes. But a growth mindset is super, super powerful that we talked about, but it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So along with believing that we can change and improve, we also need to know how to improve. We need to know the difference between the learning zone and the performance zone and how to build habits in our life to engage in both learning and performing. We also, number three, to your point, need a purpose. We need something we care about. Like, why are we going to put effort into learning or into performing or into both? You know, what is it that is interesting to me or that brings meaning and purpose uh, for me to spend my energy on this thing rather than that thing? And finally, we want to be in a learning community. We want to be with other people who also see themselves as learners and who want to collaborate with us to help one another grow and improve. So when those four conditions are in place, then we become unstoppable. We are motivated and effective learners and performers. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because one of the things that I found so intriguing and very bold is fixed mindset versus growth mindset. So incredibly important. Thanks for all the work you've done, Carol. But here's what's missing. Here's what doesn't work. And then you expand it upon all of the, the building blocks that go on top of it because it is simple enough to think, oh, well, now I have a growth mindset and I want to learn. So I'm all set. And you're like, eh, not so fast. There needs to be more of a framework so that we can really build upon that. And I, I appreciated the fact that you went beyond the things that she's done, which again, are just so seminal and have been life-changing for just the educational complex in general. But you're like, eh, there, there's a little bit more that we need to talk about. Like, I, I appreciated that. So I could literally go on and on and on and on, but I want to be very respectful of your time. So the place that I want to leave our audience is the most important part, which is the shameless self-promotion portion of the program. So if I've been compelled to learn more either about you, your work, or more specifically, if I want to buy this book, where is the best place to send people? Well, we talked about Mindset by Carol Dweck's, a seminal book about growth mindset. And then my book that just came out is called The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. It's available wherever books are sold. I'm also active on LinkedIn and I have a newsletter at briseño.com, my last name.com. I love it. We're going to make sure that all those are included in the show notes. So then the, the final place to leave, is there anything that is absolutely vital that you want to share with the people listening today that we haven't already touched upon? Just, I, I really appreciate the work that you are doing, Zach, and I've listened to some of the episodes. I've learned a lot from them, and I love how collaborative this conversation has been and how I've learned from you, and we've just kind of co-created together, which I think is part of creativity, right? It's, it's not just doing things on our own, but also, you know, a part of the range, part of uh, tapping broadly is also tapping the expertise and the experiences that different people have and bringing them together. That is also part of creativity and I think it's part of what we've done today. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So I uh, can't thank you enough for, uh, for taking the time to be here and to share your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. 
Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you've subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.